I don't know how you found instructions, but I'm, I would be surprised if any of us hasn't sometime or the other, um, I don't know, maybe bought one of these flat packs with some furniture or maybe a new electronic device, um, as Emmeline said earlier, take our uh, chargers with us. Well, maybe you've got a new mobile phone and comes with a whole list of instructions and you think, oh, yes, until you start going through the instructions and... I remember putting up um, in, in the study many years ago now a bookcase. Which, which way does this bit of wood go? Is it that screw or that screw? And I got in a terrible mess. Instructions can be lengthy, they can be unclear, can be a, an absolute nightmare. Sure, you've heard it said by some, haven't you? Instructions are for wimps and oh, I'll put those to one side and I'll get on with it. And sometimes that works, but not always. I guess at this time of the year, young people um, of all ages really, um, many will have sat examinations and we all remember instructions at the top of exam papers, answer two from section A and two from section B. And if you don't, woe betide you, you'll find you've lost marks one way or another. I know of one exception to that, a lady I knew many, many years ago, a brilliant mathematician, when she was at Cambridge, she decided that one of the questions was impossible. So she spent the whole time proving that it was impossible, and she got a first. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare try that for all the obvious reasons. And talking of instructions, or vows perhaps I should say, I'm sure some of us remember Yes, it's got to be the old days, hasn't it, when we promised, or our brides promised to obey. Gosh, if you said that now, you really would be old hat, wouldn't you? People don't say that uh, today. Jesus was pretty good at writing instructions. If you go to the um, three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find instructions that he wrote to the 12 disciples when he sent the 12 out, not this morning's, um, many more, but when he wrote, sent the 12 out. These instructions, in particular, given in Matthew 10, you'll find run to 42 verses. You think, crumbs. In point of fact, to be fair, they weren't really all instructions, the 42 verses. Many of them were what you think, or what I, Jesus, think might happen when you go out. And invariably, oh, there are going to be arguments, there are going to be problems, it's going to be jolly difficult. And no doubt the disciples took that on board when the twelve of them went out. But as you know, from what Jackie said to us a few reminded us a few minutes ago, in this particular situation, he didn't send out twelve, he sent out far more. The number varies, actually, 70 or 72, depending on which text you read. But we'll assume it was about 72. And that number is very significant. It had um, a symbolic fact about it, in fact, in two ways. First of all, it was the number of um, in, uh, Jews in the Sanhedrin, the sort of Jewish council um, of um, the time of Jesus. And these people ruled the day. The number also was the number of elders who helped Moses take the Israelites to the promised land. And so the number 72 was really quite significant. And when Jesus wrote the instructions for these 72 to go out, 
Oh, there are so many points. Whether they understood them all and whether they followed them is perhaps another matter. For example, be careful. It's like sheep going out among the wolves. You think, oh, crumbs, you know, that's not going to bode well. I'm going to have problems, aren't I? And I wonder, friends, whether perhaps we sometimes have problems for all sorts of reasons, maybe on our mission, but we'll come back to that in a moment. The instructions that Jesus wrote were, on the whole, fairly clear, weren't they? And um, he said to these 72, now, I want you to do two things, essentially, when you go out. The first is to heal. I don't think he really explained quite what he meant, but I suggest what he might have meant. Oh, yes, heal the physically handicapped if you're able, mentally handicapped again if you're able, and perhaps the spiritually handicapped if you're able. It's much broader than just simply going out to mend the sick, as it were. It had all sorts of implications when they went out. I don't know whether they took that and understood it fully. I'm not sure. Come back to that in a moment, too. And so not only to heal, but to preach. And it was very clear. Oh, yes, some will accept what you're saying. Some will tell you to get lost. We're not interested in the slightest. You know, we're not in, we just think you're talking a load of rubbish. So it was clearly a very challenging situation. Then he went on, Jesus, about hospitality. And you remember from what we said earlier that he was very clear, don't take anything with you. And he said that because the hospitality situation was so different in the world when Jesus was around. If you and I went to a village, we were sent out, we'd think, oh, no, where's the nearest place to stay? What what looks good? What's going to be helpful? But in Jesus' time, hospitality was taken for granted. It was, had to be done. If a stranger came into the village, you had to offer hospitality, if you possibly could. And so the instruction was very clear. Go to a house, bang on the door, and when the person comes to the door, a blessing, peace to this house. It's a two-way blessing, really. Yes, it was a sort of blessing to the house, Yes, you know, God is near. But it was also a blessing coming back if, if they offered hospitality. And the hospitality would be all embracing. Oh, plenty of food, no doubt, a good bedroom and all the rest. And they would look after you. Certainly it seems a strange situation perhaps um, to us today when clearly that wouldn't happen. But it was... Also interesting, if you read again the words which uh, Jackie reminded us of a few minutes ago, and I've checked up in two or three different um, translations of the Bible, and they certainly seem to be there. The words that you, after peace to this house, that you then say are different, depending, or very slightly different, depending on whether you've been offered hospitality or not. If you have, it is the kingdom of God is near to you. If you haven't offered hospitality and told the disciple to go away, it's the peace, the kingdom of God is close, full stop, not to you. 
And then, obviously, the blessing is not reciprocated. And so the disciples, armed with all this information, armed with all these instructions, went out. Um, we have a little better idea of what happened to these 72 than we do of what happened to the 12. Yes, things seemed to go quite well. Yes, they came back, as we heard, full of joy. They were so pleased. Everything had gone well. So no doubt in some houses, at least, they've been offered some pretty good hospitality. Now, you might think Jesus would have said at that point, oh, jolly, good, you know, they've learnt now about the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, you know, things are going well. I think he did say that up to a point, but it was very tempered. Don't say it, don't be too joyful, I think he said. Don't be too joyful, because that can lead to pride. Pride, if you like, in the preaching could be pride in the person standing up here if he or she thought it went well. Could be pride when we go out and speak to people, tell them about the Bible. We mustn't have pride or indeed too much overconfidence. And so, yes, I'm sure Jesus was pleased they came back, full of joy. But a warning to all of us there that we mustn't have pride in what we do or say or give for him. Obviously, the disciples didn't know what necessarily the reaction would be from the various houses. Do you know the story of, um, I'm sure Emily does, the story of Sir James Simpson, who um, in 1847, he discovered, I think that's the right word, he discovered chloroform, which in those days was thought to be a good anesthetic. I gather it's not used now, is that right? Um, <laughs> I'm sure, Emily, thank goodness, probably. But the story of Sir James Simpson is that he went to a meeting one day, 1847, so it wasn't a television interview, of course. He went to a meeting and he was asked, what was the greatest discovery you've made, Sir James? Probably people thought, that's a bit of a daft question. What's he going to say? Of course he's going to say chloroform. But he didn't. He said, the greatest discovery I've made is that Jesus is my saviour. A very profound statement. If we then come on from, if you like, the second mission, sending out of the 72, how has all that helped us? Well, it may have helped us in certain ways, but what about our mission? Sending out, if you like, the 70 or so of us, members of this church. Have you got a, a list at home of all the instructions? I have to say I haven't. It always puzzled me. If you want to join the Bolds Club, if you want to join the Railway Club, or you want to join all sorts of things, you'll get a list of the privileges and the responsibilities. Do you, when you join a church, a church, not necessarily Lindfield, but a church in the United Reformed Church, prove me wrong, please. And if anybody has got a list of your duties and responsibilities, please show me. But I don't think there is one. So we'd better go around and ferret out one or two ideas, hadn't we? Well, if you go to the Synod website, there are nine mission criteria. I'm not going all through the nine, but if you do, you'll find that they're sort of, how is the church doing in making new disciples? To what extent are we individually, to what extent are we as a church going out 
and bringing new people in. If you like, how many new members have we had or lost in the last couple of years or so? These particular criteria are used extensively if you are seeking a new minister. Is it the right place to send the very scarce resources these days of um, a minister? And it goes on, these mission criteria, it, it says, um, are you catering for people of all ages? Are you going out looking for the elderly? Are you going out looking for the children? Are you doing things socially? Hospitality come and play a part? And hopefully we can all say, indeed, Keith mentioned last week, didn't he? Are we all playing our part in the church? Do we want to become elders, for example? And one could go on looking at these nine mission criteria. But at the end, you say, well, hang on a minute. What is it actually said? What do these criteria actually say about how I should behave, how I should act responsibly as a Christian? Do they mention love? That word doesn't even appear in the nine criteria at all, surprisingly. So we'd better go somewhere else. Well, what about the greatest commandment? I must tread carefully here, because I think Keith's going to talk about this next week, so I don't want to say anything that he might be saying next week. But as you know, if we go to the great commandment asked by the Pharisees of Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? I think they were actually testing him to see whether he might say something which would rile the authorities, but let's leave that to one side. As you know, I'm sure, Jesus replied very clearly, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second part, love your neighbor as yourself. I think some of them thought, oh, we've heard all that before, Jesus. Nothing very new there, nothing very exciting. It's all in, the first part's in Deuteronomy, the second part in Leviticus. We've read all that, so come on, Jesus, tell us something that's exciting, something new and different which he then proceeded to do. He said, take those two parts, they're linked. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength unless you are loving your neighbor as yourself. Oh, am I doing that? Oh, gosh. And then the second part was very clear. Your neighbor is anyone in need. And again, Keith, I think, will be talking about that next week because it obviously leads to the parable of the Good Samaritan. One could go on about some of these things, some of these points that we might want to regard as our instructions for, um, for our mission. I read recently that in the UK as a whole, 6% of people go to church I'm not sure, is that, would that be true in Lindfield? I suspect it's probably slightly more in Lindfield, but I don't know, I haven't, I've no um, measurement at all. If that is true, if it is about 6%, there are 94% who don't. And so that's a pretty good lot of material, isn't it, for us to work with, to work for, to try and get them to become followers of, of Jesus. Certainly, I think that very clearly, if 
if we have a moment this afternoon, maybe after you've had a nap following lunch, um, maybe you've got fed up with the day's newspapers and all the miserable stories in there, jot down what you think might be some of the instructions which Jesus has given you or me for our mission, if you like, the third mission. As I say, I am not aware of any list that we have, but I'm sure we could construct one ourselves. And I think if we did that, and I must practice what I preach and do that myself this afternoon, I think we'd learn quite a lot, wouldn't we? What instructions are we actually given? They might be fairly short, fairly brief, but they might be, again, pretty, uh, pretty profound. So let us not forget, go to our homes, go to other places and say peace to this house. Whether you're sitting here or whether you're online or on the telephone, peace to your house, peace to your house and your house and yours and yours and yours. The kingdom of God is close to you. Amen.